Welcome to Sober Sisters Talk. I'm MG. And I'm Elizabeth Pudwell. Welcome. The speaker series happens once a month. This will be part of our weekly Zoom meeting that happens every Friday night. If you would like to be a part of that meeting, you have to be female. And send us an email at SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com. If you would like to tell your story, please reach out to SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com. We want to have more stories out there in order to help other women. And here's our next speaker. Thanks for listening. Also, we'd love to invite you to a Zoom meeting this Friday night at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. If you're interested, email SoberSistersTalk at gmail.com and we'll send you the meeting information and password. We hope to see you this Friday. Thank you. Thanks for the introduction. Thank you, everybody, for being here. I'm Vivian, and a um, very grateful recovering sex and love addict. I never thought I would say that. Um, Before I start, you know, I think it's important. I just wanted to kind of remind everyone of the importance of uh, identifying and not comparing with the story and also uh, to look at similarities and not differences. When I came in here, it was really easy for me to want to go, well, I didn't do that. No, I can't relate to that. You know, to try to like convince myself that I wasn't, you know, a sex and love addict, like every little bit, even sometimes I'd be like, I cannot, you know, keep doing this. So, you know, I heard that in a meeting, you know, many times I'm like, you know, that is just such a good point. And, um, you know, I want to start off with, you know, I looked at the characteristics, you know, again, before, you know, starting my story. And I was looking at, you know, the things that really kind of hit home with me. And, um, you know, the first one talks about having unhealthy boundaries. And I definitely had that becoming sexually involved and or emotionally attached without knowing people that looked like, uh, you know, having sex very early on in relationships. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're the one. Uh, fearing abandonment and loneliness, uh, you uh, return to painful and destructive relationships, concealing my dependency. Uh, again, you know, I didn't even know what it was called, but I just could not let people go, you know, once I started dating them. The other one was confused love with neediness, physical and or, and or sexual attraction with pity and rescue. Um, I definitely did not know that, you know, neediness and love, you know, were not the same thing. Uh, feeling empty and incomplete when alone. Uh, And then I always, you know, I felt empty and alone, even though I feared intimacy. I was always seeking, you know, to try to be with someone, but I could never actually be intimate with anyone. Um, uh, We use sex and emotional involvement to manipulate people. I did a lot of that. Uh, Become immobilized or seriously distracted by romantic or sexual obsessions. I I had a lot of that where, you know, I couldn't work and uh, avoided responsibility for ourselves by attaching ourselves to other people. I did that, you know, with my ex-husband in a marriage. Uh, Avoid feeling vulnerable. We retreat from all intimate involvement. I did that many times. You'll hear that in my story. I was like, oh, I don't have this. Look, I'm I'm fine. But I was just retreating from, uh, you know, any involvement. And then the last one talks about assigning magical qualities. I did a lot of that too. Just, you know, I realized in SLAA that the fantasy of what I wanted the relationship to be was almost harder than getting over the relationship itself. And I didn't know that, you know, until I came in, but it was just a fantasy. It wasn't the relationship itself. 
So, you know, my story, uh, I was the third child out of four. I came from a middle-class family. My parents were Christian. They were hardworking. My mom mostly stayed home. I would say they were both honest, good people who tried to live a good life. Uh, my mom was the first child of 12. She came from an alcoholic family. Her father was a raging, abusive alcoholic. So that was, you know, her background with a lot of kids and, you know, not a lot of attention to her as the oldest. So she grew up, you know, feeling responsible for everyone and uh, very controlling and you didn't drink. She just, you know, I guess with the fear of her father, but she was like a para-alcoholic, still had all the characteristics. My dad came from a very poor family. He worked hard, started working like, I think around 11, 11 or 12 years old. And he's always been the provider. He's a workaholic, which seemed normal, but you know, he worked 10, 11 hours, six days a week. So basically he wasn't there. So I had, you know, an emotionally and kind of physically unavailable dad as a result of that. And then he started working out of town. And the dynamics with my parents, you know, after working in this program and, you know, learning the, the terms, my mom was more like the love avoidant, the one that um, was very controlling and would tell, you know, my dad did everything. She controlled everything about my dad, like what he's going to wear, everything. And they just had these roles and he gladly, I guess, accepted whatever, you know, she told him to do. And she was kind of like disrespectful to my dad to also learn that, you um, you know, you could treat a man any kind of way and uh, he would stay. And that was a wrong message because no, men don't, they don't just stay no matter what. And, but, you know, I, I think I d definitely had some kind of screwed up ideas. And my dad, I believe, kind of checked out or dealt with this, his marriage and his situation by drinking. He drank probably like three to four drinks every day. Um, never really got drunk or violent or didn't come home or, you know, chase women. But he just, I always say he got his little buzz on. He just kind of tuned out. So again, you know, more emotional and availability from my father. Um, as far as like the kind of intensity in the home, there was a lot of yelling. Yelling was normal. Uh, you know, there was a lot. We had four kids in my family, all very close. So we were all very loud, always trying to, you know, get attention. Uh, there was occasional beatings. And, you know, looking back now, I know that that was not okay. But they did beat us with like belts and sticks. And, you know, and nowadays you would say that's, you know, that's child abuse. But it's not like it happened all the time, but enough that. I think as a small child, it did, um, you know, do, do some damage to, to my person as far as like innocence and, um, you know, not, not being as healthily attached or mature, you know, the proper way because of some of that. Um, I remember myself being a happy child. I don't, uh, we had a, a babysitter that lived with us for a while and, you know, the kids used to teach tease me and say that I was her favorite. And, you know, as I did the work in here, I think that, I don't know if I was her favorite, but I think even at that young age, I was already clinging. I, I would attach to her. I wanted to go everywhere with her. So I think I probably already had some of the characteristics of, you know, this kind of unhealthy attachment style, you know, even when I was young. And uh, I was born in Canada. My first language was actually French. I learned English, you know, when I moved here. I moved to Houston when I was 10. That was like a really big kind of changing point in my life. Um, 
you know, a lot of things changed at that point too. Uh, my dad started traveling. So we were alone, you know, with our mom and my mom was very sad and depressed. She had untreated depression. And somewhere along the way, I became like her little helper. And I was always the one who wanted to make her feel better. I'd go with her to go, you know, Christmas shopping for the kids and helped her wrap the presents, like at a really young age. So I think I got very enmeshed with her. And that's, you know, all this codependency that, you know, we learned about in here. And uh, that lasted a while and it was like normal. But, you know, at some point when I turned 14, I don't know y'all what happened, but I discovered drugs and alcohol and everything changed. Like I was just on, um, actually I'd had a, a drink. So my sex love addiction, you know, on some level is very tied to, to drugs and alcohol. Uh, I am sober from drugs and alcohol, but I started, you know, doing drugs and alcohol, got very promiscuous. I was 14 years old and I would come home and, things were, you know, really out of control. And at that point, my parents like immediately put me in a drug rehab. They were like, okay, you know, what are we going to do with this child? And so I learned early on that there was 12 step programs. I've really been around these rooms pretty much my whole life since I was 14 years old, but the sex and uh, love addiction, you know, started then it was really more like sex addiction, a little bit of love addiction. I had a boyfriend. I remember when I was 15 who lived on my street and I was so crazy about him and then I ended up cheating on him with like the boyfriend from before that because why I don't know I just did that like there was nothing wrong with you know with this kid he was so cute and you know adorable but yeah when the other boyfriend came back I was like oh I gotta have sex with him you know I was 15 years old I mean I don't know but and then I told that boyfriend what I had done because you know I still had a conscious I guess at that point and he broke up with me and I just thought that was horrible. And, you know, even at that time I regretted telling him, I was like, oh, I'm never going to do that again. Not, not cheat, but I certainly mm -hmm. wasn't going to tell someone that I cheated on them because then they disappeared. And uh, so anyway, so all my teenage years from 14 to basically 17, there was a lot of um, one night stands. And this was really very much around my uh, drug and alcohol addiction because, you know, our, your inhibitions are completely gone when, when you drink, you don't have any, you know, ability to have your senses, you know, together. And then when I was 17, I met the father of my children. And this was my first like really significant, uh, you know, sex, like love addicted relationship. It lasted from 17 to 20 and it was chaotic and uh, you know, it was chaotic, abusive, just a huge mess. We would break up all the time. Um, but I could not let it go. I mean, I was always trying to break up with him. And it was always me trying to break up with him because he was just a crazy, you know, maniac, drug addict. But within a year of dating this man, I ended up getting sober again from drugs and alcohol. So it was like, all right, you know, I'm not going to see him anymore. His name was Keith. I'm like, I'm done. And um, couldn't stop. And I ended up getting pregnant by him when I was 18 years old, six months sober. And, uh, you know, I came from a Catholic family. So, you know, my parents were like, you know, they'll help me. And I was sober and finishing up high school and, you know, kind of on the right track. So, you know, they accepted this pregnancy and were like, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll help you out. And, you know, long story short, I couldn't let go of Keith. I kept going back and, um, uh, just a lot of breakups. And anyways, I got pregnant again by him. when My son was nine months old. I was still sober in college, you know, really doing well. Uh, 
But, you know, when I look back now, this was really, you know, the very love addicted, serious consequences of my love and sex addiction. So anyways, finally, you know, we broke up when I was 20 years old, pregnant with number two. And initially, you know, I thought that I would give the second child up for adoption. I ended up, you know, not doing abortion, just I think because of the way I was raised. And uh, my family ended up helping me out with the second one, too. So uh, by the, you know, my mom was just amazing. And I had these two kids and stayed with them, stayed sober finished college, I uh, ended up meeting my ex-husband, right, like my last year of college. And this was my second, you know, love-addicted relationship. I met this man uh, when I was 22. And uh, I remember, you know, after our first date, I was like, this is it. He's the one. I mean, I just knew. And sure, shit, you know, we got married, everything. It was like all fireworks. And, but again, it was already, you know, from the beginning, just very kind of toxic and high intensity. And, you know, then at that young age, I was like, don't have sex with him. You know, you're going to screw things up. Just wait. You know, I don't know where this came from, but I, I knew that, you know, I probably needed to wait a little bit while we, I waited two months. So definitely didn't wait very long, but, you know, we dated a few years and had a lot of breakups as well. And he left, you know, he ended up moving. So I thought that was over and, you know, he called me back. And so we got married and I was married for uh, 11 years. And, you know, the, our marriage was very much um, not very intimate. You know, I think that I was the love addict and he was the avoidant, uh, definitely a sex addicted relationship. I think we just communicated with sex and that was it. I didn't know how to express myself. I don't think he knew how to express himself. And I ended up losing my sobriety um, shortly after I met him. And, and by this point, I wasn't going to AA anymore. So that had a lot to do with me losing my sobriety. But I drank for the first several years of our marriage, the first six years. And, uh, you know, that created a lot of problem. I cheated on him. Of course, I never told him at this point, because uh, I didn't want him to leave. I thought, well, if I tell him, you know, he'll leave. But I wasn't sober either during, you know, those indiscretions that were usually around drinking and uh, so towards the end of my, towards actually, you know, during my marriage, the drinking got so out of hand that, you know, he was like, you need to do something about your drinking or I'm going to leave. And I think that he was serious. I mean, he would threaten to leave, you know, every now and then, but, um, can you hear me? Oh, okay. Shanda, I was just saw Shanda, you know, like leaning in. Uh, so, but he'd do a lot of threatening to leave. And that was always like my fear of abandonment would just be like totally out of control when he would do that. And I'd be like, no, 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 you know, like whatever, you know, whatever I need to do, you know, I'd beg him to stay. And so anyway, so I got sober again, uh, you know, in this marriage when I was 29 years old. And then I, you know, I stayed faithful to him after that till the divorce. But, um, I do think that, you know, when looking back, even after I got sober, the, that marriage was really, you know, just kind of based around love addiction. Just it was an addictive relationship. It wasn't really like a whole um, intimate where we could really talk about what was bothering us. And and uh, so, you know, I got sober and the dynamics of the relationship really changed. I used to let him get away with a lot of stuff when I drank just kind of out of guilt because I wanted to drink and I felt bad. And uh, once I got sober, I was like, you know, I'm not going to tolerate like all this stuff. And um, 
you know, the more sober I got, the less I liked him. I just remember like even having a shift and like, like I didn't really even like him that much as a person. There was a lot of things I didn't like, but you know, he made my life easier. I mean, we had a dual income. He helped with the kids. The sex was still okay. You know, at this point I'm in my thirties. So that's kind of how my thinking was like, well, you know, it's not that bad, even though most of the time I couldn't stand him. Well, then my kids, you know, by the time he left, my kids were young teenagers, 14 and 16, and they started doing drugs and things were really, you know, out of control in my home. And um, we were not on the same page. And, you know, I had I already just felt like, you know, I didn't like him. And anyway, so, you know, that just the whole chaos of that with the kids um, and, you know, pretty much ended our relationship. I don't know. I think it was just like the the straw that broke the camel's back. So he left. And, uh, and at this point, um, I just thought I was going to lose my mind. I was so beyond emotionally devastated. I mean, it was definitely, I would say, the first major trauma in my life. Um, I couldn't function. I couldn't work. I was just, all I did was just cry and cry. I mean, I did counts, you know, I tried to see counselors and I didn't work for months uh, with just the intensity of the loneliness and just, you know, bawling and bawling. And, and I just so didn't want him to leave and go through the divorce. And even at that time, I remember a friend of mine just saying, Viv, you know, you don't, you don't have the time. You didn't even like him. Like, why are you so upset? And I'm like, I don't know, but it was like unbearable. And, uh, you know, luckily at that time, somebody from AA knew about SLAW and they're like, you know, why don't you get support in this organization? This was in 2006. And I was like, all right, you know, I mean, I was just willing to do whatever I needed to do to get relieved. I mean, I hurt so bad. I was just, I have changed. Like after that, I've never been the same, like as a person, emotionally, anything. I mean, it was definitely a life-changing event. So in 2006, I came to SLAW and I did a lot of work uh, at the time worked all the steps and, you know, really did enough to at least, you know, get some healing and be able to function. But at that time, you know, like I said, both my kids were on drugs. I was rebuilding my life, you know, my job changing jobs. There was just so much that I guess I didn't realize that the importance of staying in SLAA, I just kind of thought it was like to get over this hump but not that it would have really grounded me for the rest of my life. Uh, so I ended up, you know, plus I was trying to stay sober, you know, from drugs and alcohol. I'm like, I'm not going to lose my sobriety. And that was kind of top priority. My sobriety, my kids were, you know, there's only so much we could, they were in like drug programs that, you know, really took a lot of my time. And, you know, I guess, I don't know. I don't know what I thought, but anyway, so I got out of SLAA, but I stayed, you know, connected to AA and then I started dating really shortly um, after that divorce. And I was in a lot of pain. I was crying, going on dates, you know, looking back. I'm like, that was a clue. I wasn't ready. I got a boyfriend right away. I'd be crying about my ex-husband, you know, with this man. And I didn't even really like him. And I didn't know how to get out, but I just needed that connection. And anyway, so I broke up with that guy. And just, you know, as soon as I broke up, I was like, no, you know, trying to call him back, but he already had someone else. I'm like, all right, well, you know, that's not it. And spent some time alone. And, and then, you know, down shortly after that, there was a guy at work that, uh, you know, just started kind of talking to me and trying to ask me out. And, 
So I started dating, you know, this guy that I worked with and, you know, he was a really nice man and, but I was just still so wounded and, you know, I'm sure he had his own issues, but I started dating him and I would feel this like intense chest pain, emotional pain, just the thought of like going and being around him, you know, and, and looking back, like, I just thought, you know, I knew it was something about me. Obviously, I knew it wasn't about him. I didn't even know him, but uh, it was all this this disease, and I wasn't ready. And anyways, I got, I got hooked on him, and I stayed hooked on this guy for several years. And I knew it was love addiction. I was like, this is just not okay. And, you know, sometimes I'd go over there just to have sex, and he'd be like, you feel better now? You know, like he just knew, not like, yeah, you know, I mean, he, he knew there was something, something up, you know, just something different. But um, anyways, uh, uh, somewhere along the, the line over there, I also, you know, made a couple of SLAA meetings, but it was, I don't, I guess they had women's meetings. I don't know, but it was, I went to men's meetings and it was all their porn stuff and all that. I'm like, no, this isn't what I'm, what I need. So I didn't stick around. I didn't really put a lot of effort into, you know, like looking back at sloth. So what I did at that time, which was around 2009, is I decided, well, I'm just going to give all this a break and I'm going to go back to school. And that's what I did. I went back to school. I went to graduate school and uh, studied for, you know, about two and a half, three years. I got my, I'm a nurse practitioner. So, you know, it was a lot of work and I did the whole, you know, what is this a characteristic 11 that we mistaken sexual and emotional anorexia for recovery? I was like, Oh yeah, look, you're fine. You were able to just not date, not do anything. You're good. And uh, no, no, I wasn't good. I just, you know, got distracted and decided to do this. And, uh, you know, it certainly wasn't recovery. And as soon as I graduated and started my new job and passed my boards and I was like, all right, now I'm done with this not having sex business. And so, you know, I started just kind of randomly, you know, not randomly, but, you know, met some men and had some casual sex. And I was no longer, again, you know, these were my patterns, again, no longer going to AA, not in any kind of recovery. So the disease just comes back. Um, I wasn't like drinking or anything like that, but definitely was not, you know, spiritually fit. And then, you know, at some point a married man, you know, was coming on to me and that had always been like one of the things that I would never, ever do. I just thought that was like the worst thing anybody can do. And here I was, you know, in my forties and convinced myself that, yeah, you know, that, that, that's a possibility. So I had, you know, some brief, a brief encounter with one married guy, you know, that didn't work out. I didn't like him and whatever. I didn't feel good. So I moved on and uh, did some more dating. And then I met another married guy that I worked with and, uh, you know, we were on and he was my boyfriend for three years from 2012 to 16. And I was like legit happy. I mean, I had been through a lot of stuff already in my life. My close, like my family knew about him. My very close friends knew about him. I was doing a lot of Al-Anon. Even at that time, I was like, look, I told my sponsor, look, I need to tell you this up front. I have a married boyfriend. If you have a problem with this, then I need to find someone else. Like, I was doing this thing. I mean, this is what I needed at the time. She's like, no, that's fine. You know, like, she, you know, was gave me some grace and, you know, worked with me. And I was trying to deal with these kids. And um, anyway, so I did that. But, you know, now you know, being in SLAA, I realize now that that was a progression of my disease that they talk about, like once you start, you know, 
being with married men who are truly unavailable, that's like, I'm really going deep, you know, into, into my disease, but it worked. I mean, I saw him every day. He came over and had sex every day. He spent three hours at my house. He was calling me 24 seven. I saw him at work. Uh, you know, he was also a colleague. So he helped me a lot, you know, early on, I was a new nurse practitioner. He was a physician. So it was nice to always have like my doctor, like, Hey, you know, what about this? What about that? And, and, you know, I guess it served its purpose, that relationship. Uh, but, you know, as the years went on, it didn't work. And I do remember, you know, like at some point I tried to break up with him. And again, like I got a boyfriend right away, you know, I didn't allow any time. And then I had to let go of the new boyfriend. So I was like, no, you know, this isn't it. And I went back to, you know, to the married guy and his wife eventually found out and, um, called me and I knew that I had to tell her everything because I didn't want to go back to him. And I knew that if I told her it would be over. So, you know, told her everything. And then she wanted to like be my best friend. He had already done that before to her, like had already, you know, had a two year relationship, probably more. And, you know, looking back, he was a sex addict too, love addict. But anyways, finally, you know, ended that whole thing in 2016. And then, you know, again, 2017, I was like, all right, you know, I'm done with this. I'm just not going to date, take my little, you know, time off. But I got, you know, very involved in work. I was working 60 hours a week, just making money, just kind of growing my, you know, financial future. And I think, you know, I had some addiction, you know, just around that. But again, I thought, oh, you know, I don't have sex and love addiction. I'm, you know, I can stop. But again, it was more this whole characteristics of retreating from emotional and sexual contact. It was not recovery. So then in 2018, I was like, all right, you know, year off. I'm like, I'm going to start dating again. I got started getting on apps. And uh, at the, around the same time, I mean, for, by this time, I was like really far away from, you know, any kind of recovery. I mean, that was many years ago. And I actually lost my sobriety from drugs and alcohol in 2018, Um I started dating. I started drinking, smoking weed, cocaine. I mean, here I am, you know, professional. I was out of control. I was using with my kids. Uh, you know, I met the second guy I met online. He asked me to be his girlfriend. I was like, yeah, sure. I'm so lucky, you know. And this was, he was like crazy, had sex addict. And that lasted a few months and I didn't trust him. And, you know, this kind of progressed on and, you know, a lot of using. And when uh, that thing ended, I ended up like hanging out with a 29 year old and I'm like 48. And I was like, well, yeah, this is cool. You know, I can do this in a drug addict. And anyways, I was really, you know, progressing along, you know, my, my addiction. And by the end of 2018, uh, I met my last qualifier that actually brought me in. And, you know, and it's important for me to look back at my story because that guy brought me in, but it wasn't about him. But I think when I came in, all I wanted was not call him anymore. You know, I wanted to be done with that last one. But uh, anyways, mm -hmm. at the end of 2018, I met this guy online and, um, oh, we have to take a break. <laughs> oh, why does this say 15 minutes? Oh, I don't know. Oh, 15 minutes before time's up. Oh, okay. Thanks for the yes, reminder. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought I had 40 minutes. Okay, but that's fine. Anyways, I'm almost, I'm almost at my recovery. Um, so yeah, so I met this man, you know, online and I got, you know, very love addicted to him very quickly. He was like my ideal mate. He was the one I wanted, you know, thought this is the kind of man I want to marry. He didn't drink. He was humble. He was educated. He was good with his money, divorced, kids, right height. We, you know, were connected, but you know, at this point I'm doing all these drugs 
and it was very heavy in my sex and love addiction. And so, uh, so lo and behold, I just quit cold turkey doing all the drugs because I'm like, I want to be with him. And I certainly can't tell him that I'm doing all these drugs. So I stopped doing drugs, which, you know, I just, that's where I see that how my love addiction and sex addiction is very tied to kind of, or addiction period, that I was able to just let all of that go because I wanted to be with him. And anyway, so this relationship did not last long. And um, I was in so much pain around just wanted it to work. I just wanted him to want me so badly. And, and he didn't, and it was so painful, or maybe he did, but I think he was such an extreme love avoidant too. By this point, who knows how advanced of an avoidant you know, I was attracting probably like the worst of the worst is what I'm making up. And um, because I think he liked me, he just didn't know how to do it the same way I did it. And uh, anyways, uh, you know, we broke up and I just kept, you know, calling him not a lot, but, you know, just wanting to go back, wanting to go back. And, you know, at some point in 2019, I was like, you know, doing some online courses about how not to reach back out to an ex and, you know, none of this shit worked. And then in the summer of 2019, my son got really ill from, um, he had a really bad lung infection that uh, he got from shooting, shooting up heroin and uh, he almost died. He was ill. He was in the hospital for three months and it was a very low point, kind of a turning point in my life. And I didn't want to reach to the, out to the last qualifier anymore, but I was still doing it every few months. It wasn't, you know, like every week, but still I would find myself back to reaching out. And anyway, so finally by, uh, the, the fall of 2019, I came back to uh, SLAA. I was just done with this love addiction with this last guy. I was like, I I just didn't want to reach out to him anymore. And that's how I showed up, like wanting to do whatever it would take not to reach out to this guy anymore. And so I came in and uh, since I had been here before and I knew how 12 steps work, I got a sponsor very early on and I've always been, you know, kind of a go-getter, not someone that, um, that needs to be pushed to, to do things. So, um, got my sponsor started on my steps. I'm going to go through the steps here. You guys, you know, out of the book, basically, I kind of went back through the slaw text this week and I was like, and it is just so amazing. So if anybody hasn't read it in a while, I was just like, oh my God, this book is just so good. And that's the importance of like going back and rereading. But step one for me, and I, I will quote a lot out of the book was about realizing that I had lost control over my sexual and emotional life due to my obsession and compulsion by continuing on to reach out and acting out in this addiction. Um, I was powerless over the whole addictive pattern. It was important that I not only look at the last person, but, you know, I wanted to break the whole pattern. In order to do that, you know, I was told I needed to be alone for an unspecified amount of time. Uh, The book warns me, you know, in step one about the importance of not getting distracted through sexual and romantic relationships during this period, that if I did that, you know, it would abort my recovery. Uh, Also, in step one, you know, had to be willing to go to any lengths a day at a time to stay unhooked. And that looked like, you know, my withdrawal, just being willing to go through my withdrawal, however long it took, whatever it took, uh, I was willing to do that. And I did. Step two, uh, by this time, this step was about... um, being willing to allow my addicted self to die so that a new self 
free of the addiction could live. For that, I needed God's help to reshape my identity and provide my the constant guidance. Uh, you know, I, when I was reading in the book, it said there's no such thing as a self-powered cure. So again, I needed God. I needed a sponsor. I needed the steps, the book, all of it. I learned the importance of daily contact with recovery slaw members very early on to sustain myself. I made a lot of phone calls. Um, I'm just someone who like oozes with neediness. And, uh, you know, I, I called a lot of people and it was really hard at the beginning. We didn't have Zoom meetings when I came in. It was all in person. And uh, so the the availability of my contacts, were they're not like now. Now you can get so many numbers. And, you know, a lot of the women wouldn't call me back and I just had to just keep fucking calling and it sucked and I just kept calling and also learn, you know, at this, at this time too, that, you know, I needed to have some accountability, you know, to myself and how I would show up. Step three, you know, they make this reference in the book. It's a, it is about allowing our disease kept to runneth over. Um, it tells us that, you know, that we were like a cup that ran with obsession and neediness, lust and, and intrigue. Step three, in step three, we tip this cup over and let all the disease run out. And I really like that analogy. And, you know, in order to do this, I needed God's help, that God was in charge at this point that I'm turning my life. Um, and again, you know, then step three, they talk about the importance of not getting into any type of sexual or romantic relationships because again, that would kind of abort, you know, our mission. And step three is where I start praying and asking for God's help daily. Step four, it was about, you know, being really thorough, thorough, looking at my patterns and all my relationships, not leaving anything out. I saw how selfish and sick I was in my addiction and how I rationalized so much of my behavior. Uh, I was told, you know, we're told in this, in this, um, part of the book that, you know, I didn't consciously choose to be a sex and love addict. Often it was due to unmet normal human needs in childhood that this is real. And I believe I had that. I know that there was some unmet needs. Uh, you know, I see it with my family of origin, with my story. And uh, I was just kind of set up to be a sex and love addict from that. I uh, talked about, you know, having a basic loneliness and abandonment that made me afraid to be alone. And also that I, that I had fears of facing the pain and making commitments, which, you know, drove me to stay and go back to these destructive relationships, these empty relationships, and even relationships with people I didn't like. And that was, you know, all me. I mean, I didn't like my ex-husband, but I just stayed in. I had a destructive, you know, relationship with the father of my kids. I stayed in. Um, and, it, and also I was, you know, reminded knowing that, you know, I didn't cause nor could I control my addiction was the beginning of, you know, having some compassion and some forgiveness for myself. And, you know, when I read that, I thought that was a good point that I do have to forgive myself and have a lot of compassion. And, you know, I think that that's a really kind of beautiful part of this program is the, the self-love that uh, we learn to nurture ourselves. And then step five, uh, by opening up to another human being and God, the loneliness and isolation that's the root of this disease begins to ease. Uh, that's what step five, it opened up by opening up and telling all, I break that pattern that kept, that keeps us from getting, you know, what we craved all along, which is unconditional love and acceptance for what and who we are, good and bad. And, you know, I learned that with my sponsor just to be able to tell all and really was kind of the beginning of this unconditional love that 
I needed to heal and that I pass on to others that we all need. I believe that that's how we heal by loving each other uh, unconditionally. And also, you know, in step five, I learned that confession builds intimacy and healthy intimacy is an important step toward wholeness. No longer do I have to live a closed or divided life. Um, in the past, you know, I was always divided. Like, you know, there's my addiction side and then this side. And, you know, they I, they just never matched up that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And, you know, I think part of my recovery now, I'm just whole. I'm like, I'm not afraid now, you know, to, to talk about my addiction and, um, you know, my recovery. Step six, uh, this is, was my first, the first step towards rebuilding my new self, getting rid of my character defects that didn't work. To do that, I needed God's help. I needed humility. This was not the time to relax because the addiction will return with my character defects. I need to be vigilant. Uh, I need to continue to be vig vigilant against constant sexual and romantic temptation of the illusion of the perfect romance. So again, you know, step six and seven is really important to me because sometimes it's like, oh, I'm over the hump with four and five, but no, this is just the beginning. I have got to stay on top of my character defects. And, uh, you know, this time around, I was introduced to the book called Drop the Rock. And I know a lot of people are familiar with it, but I hadn't been, you know, in my past program. And it goes through every little defect you can think, like chewing gum, everything, you know, like, man, you know, I mean, I can get compulsive about, you know, all kinds of things. But, you know, in six, I've got to really take a look at my defects, Um it also reminded, you know, talked about, you know, in step six about looking at, you know, being used to being in pain as a central care as a central characteristic in love and sexual pursuits. The equal, you know, kind of the equation with love and pain. And I just think, you know, that was really important also that I was I have been very used to being in painful relationships that, you know, I kind of got to practice this with like my family members and when you know, I learned in here that when I don't feel comfortable or uncomfortable, I can learn to take a step back. It's okay. You know, if I'm in pain, that's like my body's saying, hold up. You need to look at something, something's uncomfortable and allow that needed space. Um, also that my character defects are the source of my pain and it becomes more and more uncomfortable to indulge in my character defects. That's also, you know, it was really important uh, at this point, you know, I move. We move from a limited surrender of a specific addiction toward the long process, which would refine the qualities that we want now and contribute to life. Uh, this is God's grace and the freedom from the burden of my old self. Um, this is another gift for me too: is that I had to look at, you know, all my character defects because the road for me kind of like narrows the longer I'm sober from all my addictions, you know, because my addiction is going to want to come out and I just have to look at all the things that really don't work for me anymore. Uh, step seven, by this time, you know, my struggles with my character defects are being boiled away is how they talk about it in the book, um, which changed, you know, my, our attitudes profoundly. We start to feel a deep desire to experience God's will in all areas of our lives. Um, you know, to me, that's kind of the beginning of, the miracles of the recovery of really just seeing God do for me what I can't do for myself. Uh, you know, I start becoming a vessel suited for God's purpose. My capacity to experience joy and fulfillment was directly tied to being available to my higher powers will for me. 
humility in this step is about accepting truth and willingness to allow God's power to continue to do what I could not do for myself. Again, a lot of, you know, my character defects being removed are by the grace of God, you know, there go I. Um, and also in step seven, you know, I need to, to actively participate in my recovery. You know, at this point, I'm in partnership with God and I have to accept direction for, from God. And this takes, you know, courage and a lot of faith. I have to act on faith. Step eight, you know, this is, you know, where we look at more self-examination, more house cleaning. It's similar to step four, but a little bit more uh, difficult, a little bit more emotionally charged because it deals with our relationships with others. Uh, this is where, you know, we begin to realize that I needed to forgive others essentially for the same qualities and deeds for which I was forgive seeking for forgiveness. Uh, my forgiveness of others had to be unconditional because like me, they were sick and afflicted too. So again, by, you know, wanting forgiveness, you know, of others, um, you know, I needed to have compassion. Um, it was important for me to look at my harms and take responsibility for the part that I played in destruction of my relationships. I mean, a lot of these relationships, I, you know, I had a lot, a lot of destruction. I mean, you know, definitely was not, you know, one-sided. And then, you know, also we talked about like as victims, because a lot of people come in into this program and they're victims of, you know, serious abuse. So I thought it was important to, you know, it says even as victims, it became easier to forgive other, other harms done to us because it was, um, in need because we were in need of forgiveness, the harm that had been done, you know, by them that we felt new humility as we saw that those wrongs and that we also had done some wrongs that could not be undone. And, uh, you know, I needed God as well, you know, for step eight to humbly turn to my higher power. They had a little, um, saying at the end of that step eight in the book that I thought was really amazing. It said, uh, although I'm not responsible for the conditions which created me, I am willing to try to be responsible for myself, ask help and be willing to make right what I have done to each and every person in my life. And then, you know, we close their side of the street and in God consciousness call love. We found compassion for ourselves and new awareness of our responsibility to others as sober people. And I kind of like that because, you know, I do have responsibility to others. Time's up. Okay. Um, Okay. Well, so step nine, you know, the time goes by so fast. Um, you know, in step nine, I'm just, the main point is, you know, being cautious about, um, you know, not going to run and make amends, you know, to fix broken relationships that we need to be on solid grounds before, uh, you know, making our step nine amends. 10 is about the daily examination. When I'm disturbed, then usually, you know, my spiritual spiritual condition is uh, not at the right place. I need to, to ask God to help, to help me with that. And, um, you know, I do like a four through nine when I'm not spiritually fit. 11 is about living in the present with real emotional consistency as we grow in all our relationships. And step 12 is, you know, once we've worked this step, our experience and um, as sex and love addicts is what helps others heal and bond through the language of the heart and we can point them towards recovery. And, um, you know, we see how our usefulness as channels of healing. 
And, you know, where I'm at now, I just do want to talk a little bit about, you know, where I'm at now. Um, you know, this stuff does work. I feel like uh, I'm, you know, at a place where I'm at peace. I'm single. I don't ever, you know, I don't feel like I'm alone. I really try not to even use that that term. I've done some sober dating, which has been, you know, really nice and calm and not chaotic. And um, the other thing that I do want to talk about briefly, though, is as part of my, you know, in my recovery, that I think was also important is when I got done with my steps the first time around, the first thing I wanted to do was start dating. That was like big, big on my radar, start dating and uh, reach back out to that last qualifier. Cause I thought, well, maybe now that I'm sober, you know, things will be different. And, and I reached back out to him and he said, no, that there was too much pain around, you know, this relationship. And he didn't think it was a good idea, but I still reached back out. So that just reminds me of like how deep this, attachment is to the to this person to these people and how I want to fix you know that unavailable partner but he said no so then I did some sober dating which was okay but down the road I reached back out to him again in November after he had already said no mind you and you know it was pleasant but you know it was just reaching out so but you know again I had to put it on my bottom line and, you know, continued with my process here and some dating. And then I reached out to him again in March. And finally, by this time, you know, I thought I was going to lose my mind. I was like, okay, I'm crazy. This shit's not working. And um, uh, I ended up at that point. It was, again, a big turning point in the in this recovery. I just decided to get a, a new sponsor. And it was That's about it. my sponsor. This month's oh, my God, let me try something different. Stay tuned. So I got a new sponsor, reworked the steps. Thank you. And uh, started sponsoring women after I was done with those steps. And I think that that, you know, really has been a turning point. Instead of going, okay, now I'm ready to date again. I was like, let me just. Let me just start helping some people. Let me just be quiet for a while. So I have not reached out since March of last year, coming up on a year off my bottom lines. I've been sponsoring women. I've been open to dating, but not like actively looking online. So that's been really nice too, just kind of living my life and sponsoring and, you know, doing service, but not feeling like I have got to do something to, to make it happen. And so that's been nice, but actually this year I've decided to get back online and I feel great and excited about it and I'm not anxious. And I'm like, you know, if God wants to bring me someone, he will. And one of the guys that I had dated when I was ready to date right away in 2020 after I was done, actually moved to Houston and contacted me. And I'm like, mm, you know, maybe I'll go see him. I mean, I'm definitely curious to to gather more information about that. But, you know, I've learned a lot about boundaries, about self-care about allowing uncomfortable emotions when I don't get a response from someone um, that has always been a major trigger for me in the past. Like I could not handle that, but today I'm okay. I've, I've had some, you know, kind of new friendships in here that didn't work out. And that was kind of sad too, you know, with some women. So I had learned, I learned to let them go as well, that uh, that's okay too. And to trust my higher power to give me the the relationships and the friendships that, that are right for me. I've had a lot of growing, did some family of origin work, a lot of separation from my mom, from all that enmeshment. That was very painful, but necessary boundaries with children. So, you know, it's just been an amazing journey, very painful, but, you know, I'm not in pain anymore. Thank God. So it does get better. And I uh, just want to encourage everyone to just keep doing the work and coming back. And, you know, there there was relief. And thank you so much for your time. Thank Thanks, you. Vivian.